COVID-19 has changed everything, halting life as we know it in its tracks. To respond to this global pandemic and to adapt to this new way of life, we're doing things a bit more DIY than usual. We're not in the studio and we're dispersed all over the country, but we did want to respond to the urgent need for information, bringing to you the voices of some of the leading experts to help us grapple with the new and not-so-new dimensions of this crisis. It's in this vein that we're calling the series Under the Black Light to uncover the conditions that pre-existed the virus and the cracks in our social structure that the virus can now exploit to wreak maximum havoc. In the coming weeks, we'll be producing live conversations that bring together artists, activists, thought leaders, scholars, service providers, and others on the front lines of the fight against COVID-19. Each Wednesday, we'll bring you a virtual conversation over Zoom, which will then be released as an episode of Intersectionality Matters in the following week. So we warned, we worried, and we knew. Yet the racialized impact of COVID-19 escaped mainstream media's attention until now. So today we turn more directly to those racial dimensions that are laid bare, exploring through a cross-racial lens the many aspects of vulnerability that we are seeing. We have in past weeks touched on the disproportionate risks and burdens faced by economically marginalized communities, in particular, workers who are essential but expendable, those who lack access to work, resources, and housing. Today, we want to squarely confront the racial dimensions of COVID, those aspects of the crises that intersect with our distinct racial history, a history defined by race and racism, capitalism, settler colonialism, and imperialism, none of which operate alone, yet all definitively active in this moment. Rinku, can you paint a picture for listeners about what's happening there in Queens? Perhaps we might call this at least one of the epicenters within the epicenter. Yeah, thank you so much for including me in this discussion. I am in Rigo Park, Queens. I'm about a mile and a half from Elmhurst Hospital, which is the all-COVID hospital. Couple of things to know are that New York City is eerily quiet. This is a noisy city. Things are always happening here, and um, there is there are no sounds. There's no traffic. There's no voices. There's nobody fighting on the street. There's nobody playing on the street. Um, so just that is kind of surreal. We are in a situation where New York City's death toll constitutes about two-thirds of New York State's, and the Bronx, Queens, and Brooklyn are uh, the boroughs of color. Manhattan and Staten Island are much whiter in their populations. And you can see um, from the map that where the real hotspots are and where people are getting sickest and dying most are in Brooklyn and Queens, um, Queens even higher than Brooklyn. And so much of that is because that's where um, not just people of color live, but it's where essential workers live. So it's your bridge and tunnel crowd and workers who are um, unable to not work and unable to get to work without riding on mass transit. That's the only way in New York to get to work. So we are just reeling from the death toll and we're really seeing how the income and race demographics of the city play out when there is a global pandemic. Yes, I, I'm wondering whether um, what you're seeing in Queens might be amplified by uh, hot spots across the country. We've been hearing things out of Chicago um, and hearing things out of Milwaukee, the list goes on. Um, what do these tales of death and disease uh, have in common? So I think that um, some of what they have in common is the dismissal of people of color with symptoms. They also have in common that many of the workers are of color. So the health workers, the sanitation workers, the uh, transit workers. Uh, in New York, we've had a high number of transit workers die. And I think uh, I've seen similar numbers in Chicago and Detroit and other places. So. 
uh, I think what you're seeing is the concentration of people of color, um, which is about segregation and housing affordability and transportation. That segregation creating a whole bunch of systems around it, segregated workplaces, segregated hospitals, transportation. And, you know, Elmhurst is a public hospital. And I, I do think the public hospitals are getting hit with, um, you know, all of the patients who don't have health insurance and who are coming in for emergency care, who don't have access to telemedicine. In Queens, it's very Asian. So you have Asians working in the health care industry and also Asian patients and just Asian people who are experiencing hate crimes in addition to other kinds of discrimination. So I think, you know, I'm going to point to segregation as a key theme, racial, racist segregation, as one of the reasons we're seeing this happen all over the country. Thank you. Thank you, Rinko. Well, um, similar to Queens, we're seeing devastation ravaging Louisiana. So for example, coroners in St. John the Baptist Parish are saying that people are dropping like flies, quote. Now we're nearing the 15th anniversary of Hurricane Katrina. Um, and as we approach it, New Orleans is once again being swept away by the intersection of tragedy and pre-existing inequality. So Asali, what are you seeing in what we could call the city that care forgot? Well, as you talked about in your opening, these are just issues that the current crisis is laying bare. But, you know, we live in a place um, where blackness itself is an underlying condition. In the city of New Orleans, in the state of Louisiana, you know, we have been ravaged for decades by policies, by multinational corporations who are allowed to um, pollute our neighborhoods, who are intentionally placed in our communities. Um, you mentioned St. John the Baptist Parish. That community um, in particular experiences the highest rates of cancer anywhere in the country. So it's only a natural thought that they would now be experiencing um, rates of COVID at the highest. Everybody in every neighborhood, in every community, um, in every kinship and affinity group all know someone. You know, this is all hitting at the gut level, whether it be the health or whether it be the economic um, distress, which are, of course, deeply intertwined. The communities which we serve at Ashe Cultural Arts Center, and particularly our cultural workers, um, who make up the reason that people know and love New Orleans, who um, create the industry, the biggest industry in our city, are also the most adversely impacted. You're hearing about our musicians and our Mardi Gras Indians and our second liners at you know vast rates, um, in addition to our healthcare workers. Um, so it's really um, emotional for a community that already experiences a 25 year difference in life expectancy. Yeah, wow. And, you know, as, as almost, you know, on point uh, with the conversation, it seems as though we're being uh, Zoom bombed. Uh, I with saw a lot that. Of, um, <laughs> I guess the one thing that we could say about that is if there are any people in our audience who think, well, maybe, you know, this is an exaggeration. Um, the, we're talking about issues that no longer exist. Exhibit A. Right. Mm -hmm. Exhibit A is right. right here. You know, so so we're not going to freak out about it. We're, we're going to use this sort of like as the downbeat. This is what we are up against uh, in this moment. Um, and, uh, you know, it kind of kind of reminds me of, of those moments in the civil rights movement where they were having freedom you know, uh, congregations to get ready for marches and, and the Klan circled them outside, yes. right? Um, it just redoubled their efforts and their energy, you know, to sing of freedom uh, at the top of our uh, their lungs. We're going to talk about freedom at the top of our lungs. Come on and, now. Uh, not let any of this craziness turn us around because we are here and we got stuff to talk about. Um, so uh, from what you've been seeing in Louisiana, are, are there some factors that just aren't being talked about as much as they should be? Well, 
You know, I will say that I am happy that the governor acknowledged the state of things to a certain extent. Um, but no, certainly it's not being talked about the way that it should be. Personally, in my work and with my projects, we've been ringing the alarm about the 25-year difference in life expectancy. Um, when that data came out six or seven years ago, I was like, that's a public health emergency. Hey, this is crazy, y'all. Let's do something about this. And it was like, oh, yeah, that's crazy. Now, what were we doing? <laughs> you know, so there, there's no sense of urgency, you know, as was mentioned earlier about the way our pain is treated, the way our humanity is viewed, um, is evidence inside of these statistics. And, you know, it's not because of anything genetic or inherent. We didn't choose to move to the places where environmental racism exists. Environmental racism exists because we live there, <laughs> and <laughs> right, you know, right. things are right. policies are created, projects are developed intentionally in those communities, highways, <laughs> you know, are put intentionally in those communities, you know, for a purpose of creating the exact outcomes we're experiencing. Yeah, yeah, and you know, we 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 want to come back around to that in a bit. Just the way the conversation is framed sometimes projects onto the community or into the body, uh, the vulnerability, rather than focusing on the agency of those who place these environmental toxins in our community or um, other stressors in the society that then become part of our health uh, prognosis. Um, I want to uh, bring Dallas and you know, building on the images that Asali and Rinku are, are painting for us, could you tell us about what you're seeing in Indian country? What is the virus doing there? What, and what is it threatening to do? Well, I want to say first, thank you for having me on this, uh, this webinar here. I'm so happy to share this space with so many beautiful people um, sharing great knowledge. Um, it's pretty dire across what is quote unquote Indian country, um, the indigenous diaspora of native folks here in the, in the so-called United States. You know, in particular, we're, we're a major concern right now is, is this explosion of cases are happening down in the Navajo Nation, which is in the, um, the Southwest region, where they currently have around 430 cases right now and 17 people have already died. Now these are tight knit communities that are pretty remote unto themselves. I mean, Navajo Nation, um, I think that 70% of people have electricity, the remaining do not have electricity or running water in their homes. One of the huge issues here is that Navajo Nation is a nation of 90,000 citizens and they only have two hospitals. Two hospitals? That's right. I got, I got a cousin that, ha that is Navajo that if they wanted to go to the hospital, it's a good hour and a half drive to two hour drive for them. I mean, this is, and now we're dealing with the idea of like the reality of a pandemic, you know, as epidemic of disease coming into this community, it's terrifying. Wow, wow. So I'm sure that you know, that's shocking in and of itself, but when one pulls the lens back um, to talk about why Native American communities are being so hard hit by the pandemic, what comes to mind as you know, the precursors to this moment with respect to the neglect and, and mistreatment that this crisis is exacerbating? It's a great question. And I, I want to um, also note that the, the hospitals there, so the, the, they're doing their best and, ha and like amazing like appreciation to a lot of the, the healthcare providers on the ground who are, who they, they, many of themselves are Navajo themselves helping and working within their own community. Um, Indian country is pretty wide. I mean, there's um, the Indian Health Service is a federal program where it's helped help provide health services to native communities. There's over 2 million people in that system and they only have under 30 ICU beds. You know, they only have under 50 ventilators for a system that's supposed to serve between 1.5 and 2 million native peoples. What this is, is just demonstrates that the system was flawed before this pandemic even happened, that there that there is the vast inequity in this country becomes much more apparent as we're starting to deal with this health crisis at this current time. Yeah, those are sobering numbers, um, and it's important that we recognize that although we're focusing, you know, the media is focusing on one hot spot, there there are many, and all reflect a failure 
uh, to prepare and, and a failure to recognize the most vulnerable. Um, so I want to turn to the next group of panelists to talk about the political and historical context that's contributed to these outcomes. So Danny, we've been hearing about the growing number of cases of anti-Asian harassment and violence since this pandemic broke. What might this be telling us about how deep these racist sentiments actually run, and I guess also what are we not being told um, in the way the media is uh, covering these moments of anti-Asian violence. Thank you, Kim, um, and thank you for these just amazing webinars, a chance for us to learn from another. It's a really important question. Maybe a little background would help here. Um, about a week and a half ago, colleagues at San Francisco State, Russell Jung, and a set of community organizations set up an online platform for people to register incidents of anti-Asian violence, discrimination, and harassment. You know, in just a few days, the website was flooded, something like 1,200 incidents reported um, in less than a week. And I think it's important to know this is just the tip of the iceberg. There are many, many more examples of bullying, harassment, just in these very everyday ways, schools, businesses, communities, trains, uh, everywhere. And yes, this is fueled by Trump's very prominent racist description of the so-called Chinese virus, the Kung Fu flu, and uh, you know, a long-standing uh, racist campaign on the right. But I think it's a mistake to just think about this as individual bigotry or narrow-mindedness. There's other things happening. Just remember, in early January, when news of this was coming, what was so many of the public's first reaction? Stop going to places associated with Asian bodies in Chinatown, Chinese restaurants, uh, deserted, Lunar New Year festivals canceled. In Southern California, just around the time in the same areas where Kobe Bryant lived and after he passed, parents there began pulling their kids out of schools with large numbers of Asian American students in very blue liberal areas. There was a petition with something like 14,000 signatures to close one high school in particular in Southern California in the name of protecting the community from what they called the Wuhan virus. So um, you know, this runs far, far deeper. It would be easier if it were just the work of, of a, a small number of narrow-minded people, but it's a reminder of how deep and profound these ideas run. What is it important for people to bring from history forward to understand how this is a reproduction of Yeah, I mean, I think it, we past. can really think about this as a 19th century reaction to a 21st century pandemic. I mean, how deep this association between bodies and certain kind of disease run? I mean, the, the short history is in the 19th century, uh, Chinatowns, Chinese workers, Chinese communities were always associated with disease contagion. And rather than looking, I mean, there's parallels here to New Orleans at the sets of underlying social conditions that make people vulnerable to that, the disease is attached to the bodies and gets transposed onto immigrants from uh, Mexico, you know, in the early 20th century. It's also connected to, to the myths that were coming early on about black bodies as somehow being immune to this, the very ways that like, racial particularity gets attached to this. So, I mean, this is really expressive of a long history of medical and scientific racism. It's baked into our public health system about the ways we think about who possibly can get contaminated with the disease, who can't. And I think it goes a long way to explaining the complacency, the notion that diseases affect some kinds of degenerate people, they're culturally associated, rather than understanding how they actually spread through populations and contacts. And just the last thing I want to add about this is that the New York Times, well into February, constantly referred to this as the Wuhan virus. Stories constantly did that. And it was to all of our devastating effects to be preoccupied with these racial and cultural explanations and not take seriously what was actually happening. I'm going to move to Mari at this moment in light of some of the issues that Danny raised about anti-Asian harassment, hatred, and, and violence. So recently, uh, Andrew Yang wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post. And in this op-ed, he argued that the best way to combat racism related to COVID-19 was for Asian Americans to demonstrate their Americanness. And, you know, his illustration of that was the example of Japanese Americans who uh, enlisted in the military during World War II. There's just like, there's so much to unpack here. What's important for people to know about this strategy? It doesn't work. Um, but I would really like to say to Andrew Yang, as a Japanese American, my father was born in Los Angeles, US citizen. 
he volunteered for World War II from a concentration camp. He is the only survivor of his original squad. How dare you use that history to push this myth that if we just act more American, the racism will stop. Are you seriously gonna tell that to children in Midland, Texas who were slashed in the face, knifed by racists? Or a woman just this week in the Bronx who was beaten on a bus and had to get stitches in her forehead? Anytime someone is suggesting an individual blaming solution to the structural problem of racism, uh, alarm bells should go off um, for those of us who have studied the history of racism against Asian Americans in this country. What's your sense about why these strategies are so sustainable? I mean, it's kind of shocking, actually, um, that someone would promote this kind of idea rather than confront head-on uh, the racism. I think people like you have pointed out that the ability in the United States to deny the reality of what white supremacy has done, how it's structured wealth and power in this country, is profound and it affects how people are educated. So I consider Andrew Yang an example of the miseducation. Um, you know, most people graduate from elite institutions in this country without any exposure to the ideas of critical race theory, without any exposure to the kind of Asian American history that Danny was talking about earlier. You know, for those Chinese families that can trace back to the 19th century, they're on their seventh and eighth generation of proving their Americanness. And still, you can be walking down the street and boom, that racist assault will happen. Uh, but I think you only understand the failure of assimilationist strategies if you know the history. And the ignorance of the history is a constructed ignorance. Uh, and, and I'll shout out now the students at Harvard University who are still in a struggle to get basic ethnic studies 101 taught at their very expensive, um, prestigious institution. This is over 40 years after Professor Crenshaw led a boycott at Harvard University against a racist curriculum. Yeah. And, and again, I mean, these are, these are illustrations, they're exhibits. I, I think that largely, you know, the, the conversation that, that probably most needs to be had is between um, those of us who see the impact of racial ignorance um, and folks who consider themselves our allies, but don't necessarily know, well, why do we have to have ethnic studies? What, why do we have to continue to uh, drag up, you know, these, these histories? Well, well, this is why. If you're appalled by the attack on Asian Americans in the streets, then understand what the significance of that is when students and faculty are trying to push for deeper investment in historicizing um, the country we now live in. So on that, I want to turn to Rosa Clemente and call back just a bit what Dallas and Rinku illustrated. We could consider these the contemporary consequences of racialized disasters of the past. It's like there have been disasters and then the approach to the disasters have simply reinforced the vulnerability of, of particularized communities. So speaking of disaster, it was just two years ago that the world watched while 45 completely abandoned Puerto Rico in the wake of Hurricane Maria. You know, we've heard about how the abandonment of New Orleans has positioned people there. Has governmental negligence endangered Puerto Ricans bracing for COVID? Well, first, thank you for having me on and hello to everybody out there. No, I mean, I think colonialism has done that. Like, I, I, I know that if Hurricane Maria had happened, um, while there was a president, Barack Obama, he wouldn't have come and thrown paper towels at us, but I don't think he would have done that much of a difference in Puerto Rico, um, especially in light of him and the Democratic Party um, really dealing a, a, a death blow 
to the island before Hurricane Maria, which then put us in the worst economic precarious situation ever, which was championed the PROMESA bill, which PROMESA, um, when it was passed, and the only Democrat to stand against it was Senator Bernie Sanders. It was written by two Puerto Rican Congress people, um, Nidia Velasquez and Jose Serrano. It was championed by the CBC and this, the Congressional Hispanic Caucus. And there was a testimony when Lin-Manuel Miranda said that the best thing to happen to Puerto Rico would be PROMESA, which would restructure the so-called debt um, and would now make that. And, and Rosa, tell, tell the audience uh, yeah, what PROMESA was to restructure the debt in Puerto Rico that was already astronomically high post the 2008 recession. And although many Puerto Ricans from the island and here begged Barack Obama and all those Democrats to not pass PROMESA, which would then allow any money coming in for more than half of it to go to debt and to bondholders, they did not listen to us. So then two years later, of course, you have Hurricane Irma came first and then Hurricane Maria that devastated the island. So were the Republicans who they always are 100%. But Puerto Rico is in that position and continue to be in that position because over 125 years of United States colonialism and imperialism. So now with what's happening on the island the last two years is that the federal judge um, Last, less than a year ago, there was a federal judge in, in New York that said 80% of Puerto Rico's revenue will not go, now go to pay the debts in Puerto Rico. So before anything gets fixed in Puerto Rico, 80% of that money goes to the debt. So, so how has it impacted then um, it, with so many of the resources uh, being uh, stolen basically to pay for the debt. Um, how does that undermine the ability of people on the island uh, to be protected? We, we've read that actually some of the more draconian um, uh, curfews and punishments are are happening in, in Puerto Rico. So it's sort of uh, you know, um, one of the ways that uh, policing makes up for lack of resources is to turn things into a criminalizable problem. Is is that yeah, part I mean, of what? Well, that's where we begin to see more shutting down of hospitals. We've had much flight of doctors, especially young doctors, who, um, because there has been no Medicaid reimbursement from the US federal government for over three years, doctors were not getting paid, which is why you see such a heavy migration of doctors, especially young doctors to Miami. So you're right, what has happened in Puerto Rico with the new governor, Wanda Vasquez, has been the most draconian efforts we saw. One of the cruise ships disembarked they let people off that cruise ship. And there was an Italian woman who had the virus and she, they started trace contacting her contact. So Wanda Vasquez not only put in a curfew very quickly, never told anyone. Um, they're still allowing rolling blackouts, which makes communication hard on the island. And just this week, she raised the fine from $500 to $5,000 if you're breaking the curfew and also six months in jail. And with that, I want people to think like, none of us could really probably afford $5,000, but the medium income of a family in Puerto Rico is $21,000 a year. So there are those very harsh Zacronian measures. And, and lastly, the police have also have had some of the highest um, murder rates where they've been killing their partners, mostly women, at the highest rates in the Western Hemisphere. Thank you. Thank you, Rosa. 
I want to like circle back around and, and, you know, just pick up some of the frames that, that people have uh, brought to fore um, quickly with uh, Asali. You know, we've been talking about the environmental racism frame um, in which heightened vulnerability is framed as a feature of neighborhoods or it's framed in terms of diseased or distressed communities. There's, there, there's something slightly off about that. There's something slightly off about what I think is the merging conversation about the disproportionate uh, death rate uh, from COVID. It's going to be framed like, well, what's, what's in those people? So what's missing, in, in your sense, from this framing that places the problem inside of us or inside of our communities? I mean, well, I think it's a, um, definitely a conversation that um, needs to be had on various levels around what you describe as, you know, agency. In New Orleans, one of the things that we are working on um, in looking at our place-based outcomes, because all of our equity issues are zip code related, um, at, as in most places. And so really doing a review of our policies to look at those um, which lead to disparity, which lead to differences in income and health outcomes and um, all of those things. Um, and particularly for um, climate, I mean, there's a large body of work and lots of studies that have been done that show that climate disruption and climate injustice are largely the result of, you know, we talk about human activity, but in particular, it's the activity of uh, wealthy white people. It is for activities that directly benefit them. It is for activities that um, directly directly enrich them and improve their qualities of life. And the outcomes of those activities are all um, designed, intentionally placed inside of communities of color and poor communities. And, you know, now that they are putting the numbers to it, um, it makes it easier for us to, you know, to make an argument around it. But I don't think that um, it is changing as of yet any impetus for policy. And that's where, you know, this discussion really has to live. Yeah, yeah. On that note, uh, Dallas, I, I, I want to come to you because, it, you know, as I was talking with Asali, it, it's more or less uh, the frames that locate disease in the places where Black people choose to live. And of course, uh, when it comes to Native peoples, you know, they're living on their land, right? So um, it, it sort of uh, requires us to think about the particularities of settler colonialism, the consequences and its ideologies, right, that naturalizes um, some of these conditions that you talked about. Um, so how can we or do we think about this moment of crises as an illustration of an embodiment of settler colonialism? Great question. I, I can't help but I'm getting like worked up and emotional listening to this. I think that it, it really is a needed conversation, right? To take a step back and look at what, what are the greater mechanisms at play in this situation right now and how are we addressing it? Because I'm really concerned about what is the world gonna look like after COVID-19, right? Because really what we're talking about, what I'm hearing in this conversation is the two, are two primary operative mechanisms that uphold white supremacy and capitalism, and that is anti-Blackness and Southern colonialism, working hand in hand to diminish the quality of life of communities of color, but also to legitimize the continuation of capitalism, to say, okay, we just gotta get back to the status quo. Meanwhile, a lot of our communities, the status quo is what got us into this critical situation. And Asali, you just put it, you put it perfectly, and I'm, I'm, and I'm maybe in danger of paraphrasing, you know, Black folks, Native folks, any like these certain communities are not getting sick because they're Black or because they're Native. It's because we have health conditions that are not of our own making. We don't just have asthma. We just don't have difficulties breathing or compromised immune systems just because we are. It's because the system has created the conditions in which we live sometimes that have compromised our immune systems. The system itself has diminished the quality of our life to where we are now more at risk. And we have to call out that system for what it is. And so, like, really, that's the, at the heart of climate justice. That's the heart of social justice. That's why we really have to bring it, to bring it back to the bigger picture of what, what are, what's the system doing to kill us, right? And how are we rising up against that? And so by connecting these dots is yeah. absolutely essential for us to really for, have greater tools um, to support our frontline communities. Can I just say something, Kim, to just build off that? what Dallas was just saying real quick. Yeah, go ahead. 
Something that's happening between particularly black and brown communities of young people, poor working people, uh, young people that are um, part of hip hop culture and kind of YouTube culture is there are daily um, videos being made by particularly what we would call the hotep kind of community in a unfortunately um, pejorative way that um, are still talking about how black people don't get the virus. And that's a big conversation and a lot of community, like poor in the hood, in the bodegas, in the barrios where people are like, black people don't get it. Or second, it was a biological thing that went out of control, which look, it could be very true, but I think we have to address that, but also speak to why is there a historical distrust of particularly African-American and Puerto Ricans against the medical system? The Tuskegee syphilis experiment and 30 years of uncontrolled birth control and sterilization methods on Puerto Rican women and African-American women in, the, in Lincoln Hospital in the Bronx. So I think those are things too that we're gonna have to start unpacking as communities um, in, in these certain segments of our communities. So, you know, building on that, I, I, I want to bring Rinku back in, because um, part of what Rosa is, is bringing up for us is both the question of historical reasons for uh, mistrust and lack of targeted information and mechanisms uh, to reach communities that are, you know, socially marginalized, um, not necessarily um, being uh, addressed through mainstream uh, media. And so it raises a couple concerns, uh, particularly with respect to journalism. So around the world, there, there is this concern that, that COVID is going to be like a Trojan horse that, you know, uh, facilitates crackdowns on journalists. And I don't think it's too much of a leap to suspect that it might be traditionally marginalized journalists. And in turn, our access to information that's most at risk. Um, and in this regard, I'm, I'm thinking about the president's efforts to shame and, and silence Yamichi Alcindor in this vein. So what, what are your thoughts about the opportunistic repression of information that this is representing and how it may impact communities of color? So I think one of the most important things we can do right now is support local journalists who are reporting on what is actually happening um, in our hotspots and in our communities. And um, I think that ranges from, um, you know, making donations to your local hyper-local um, outlet. I know Oakland has a hyper-local outlet. I know New Orleans has a hyper-local outlet. Um, so I think really either supporting the hyper-local reporting that is happening or starting to do it yourself. <laughs> um, I think this is a time where citizen journalism is going to be totally, totally, totally critical. And I also think it's important actually to um, support our daily papers. So if, if it was me, I'd be sending some donations to um, all of the independent outlets that I trust, especially local ones. Um, and I would also be subscribing to my local newspaper. Um, and uh, just one last thing, and then I'm going to stop. I think it's really critical to organize to push our systems, healthcare systems, labor systems, transportation systems, uh, dem democracy, civic systems. But in the very immediate, we have to survive. So the way to do that, I think, is actually through mutual aid. And it's very hard when you're sick to advocate for yourself. Can we think about accompanying people? Uh, we should be demanding antibodies tests so that we can actually figure out who among us can go out safely and help. Uh, so mutual aid, lots of organizing, support your local journalists. And, you know, while I have you, let me just get your sense of the government's role in, in providing uh, information, particularly racial data. So as we know, Senator Warren, Representative Presley have both called for reporting of racial data. But as far as I know, the CDC still has been stonewalling. Some states have refused to 
released racial data. And I, I think some folks might think, well, they maybe they just don't have it. Uh, but Rinko, I'm, I'm wondering, what is this battle over racial data sort of telling us? Why is this such a battle? Should we be worried? We've, we should definitely be worried. Um, you know, we had to um, organize for more than a decade to get data collected on driving while black and driving while brown. So there's no reason to expect that it's going to be different this time. The institutions are um, uh, reluctant to turn over data, or either to collect it or to turn it over, because they know it's going to be horrifying and unacceptable. And so we have to push really, really hard. And in the interim, we have to start collecting that data ourselves. Uh, we have to like actually do some um, participatory research projects and um, I think at this point, it doesn't even matter how small scale they are. You do a survey of your extended family and put those results out on Twitter. Who could get a test? Who could get care? Um, who didn't make it through? Um, and so I think we need to collect data ourselves while we push for institutions to give it to us. Thank you, Inku. In this note, I, I want to come back to you, Mari. So you had, had said that the pandemic reveals structures that critical race theories have written about for years. Can you illustrate? Um, sure. Well, going back to what Sally said, if your life chances are determined by your zip code, what determined what zip code you ended up in? It was legal to have in the deed of a house, you may not sell this house to a Black person, an Asian person, or a Jew. These were le legally created structures of segregation, um, and, and we live with the, the legacy of that. Um, but also our, our economic system that is built on racialized advantage-taking and extraction, going all the way back to genocide of Native Americans and chattel slavery, um, was the engine of wealth building in this country. And for us to act as though that didn't set the stage for levels of advantage and disadvantage, both at the hard economic material level, but also at the ideological level that we've been talking about, who's viewed as someone um, who is supposed to get sick? Well, it's your fault that you got sick. Why do you have that comorbidity? Maybe you should have exercised more. Without talking about what is your access to health, in your community. It also reminds me uh, about the many battles that we've had over the last 30 years about the need to sustain the capacity to um, access racial data in order to mark discrimination and domination. Um, one of the main uh, tools of the uh, conservative, anti-affirmative uh, action, anti-equity juggernaut was to go after the very capacity to collect race, racial data. If you don't have racial data, you don't have anything to argue about, right? There's no claim that you can make. Um, and so we're going to take away your ability to even aggregate what is happening on a racial basis so that there's no fight about it. Um, and, you know, I, let's, let's be clear as well. Um, it's not just the right wing that really pushed a colorblind agenda. The whole celebration around post-racialism in many ways took the capacity and the imperative of collecting racial data uh, off the table, at least framed it as sort of last you know, generation's issue. So now we're seeing some of the consequences of people being skittish um, about reflecting information on the basis of race. Danny, I wanna come back to you because we were talking a little earlier about you know, the connections between these different systems of subordination. Um, and many times people see them as being separate, right? So there's, you know, racism and, and sexism separate. There's colonialism, imperialism, you know, capitalism, racism. Um, and that people have big fights <laughs> about which ism is at stake now. Um, and I think we have, you know, a sense that, yes, racism works in distinct ways through these different systems, but um, we, we struggle sometimes with trying to put them together in a way that's meaningful. So how, how do you view or think about intersectional analysis as a way to help us see the implications 
of these different systems, particularly in the way they're playing out now? That's such an important question. I and mean, I think one of the things that we learned from your work, Kim, you know, the intersectionality is not just a critique of how racism works, it's actually a, a criticism also of the limitations of certain approaches to anti-racism and to feminist politics that try to kind of cordon off and think that domination just works through these, you know, pretty simplistic ways, um, what, what you, know, you described as a single access notion of discrimination. And this gets back to the Andrew Yang story, um, and it even gets back to how Asian Americans might respond to these hate incidents, which is if you just think it's something particular about you, disconnected from all of these other systems and frameworks, then you're just incentivized to try to protect yourself and safeguard yourself and actually not pay attention to what's happening at other places. But for Asian Americans now, to think that this spate of anti-Asian violence can just be solved with some kind of like consciousness raising or you know, trainings about tolerance and then leave undisturbed what Dallas is talking to us about, about what's happening um, in Nav Navajo um, reservations, what's happening in New Orleans, what's happening in Puerto Rico, actually misses the ways that we, our anti-racist politics, have to trace out these connections. It doesn't mean that they're the same. I understand that what's happening to a, um, an Asian American student in Southern California is not the same as what's happening to black communities in New Orleans or you know, people that can't access a hospital in Puerto Rico or a doctor. But um, our politics have to be able to trace what some of those connections are, not to lump them together, but to think about the connections. Because I think that the kind of systems of power are, you know, they, they thrive on our inability to recognize and see one another in that way. And just the last thing I wanna say about this is, it is, I mean, this is a point that Rosa made. It is impossible to breathe this air of racial domination and not, in, it's not just internalize it, but take up some of it ourselves. We become weaponized against one another. And, and so um, this has to be part of our organizing practice is to be able to trace out some of those connections, not to make them the same, they're not the same, but to think about their intersections. Well, um, as you were speaking, I, I was checking out the, uh, the question box um, and much of what you were saying was being amplified. Um, Jason Wu reminds us that Professor Matsuda has said the strategy is ask the other question. Um, so we're, we're transitioning into our last 25 minutes. And so our panelists are going to share with us what needs to happen and who needs to make it happen. Right? So what's the world have to look like in this post-COVID world? And what is being done or what can be done uh, to make that happen? So Dallas, I'm going to go uh, first to you. Uh, what are some of the things that are happening to support uh, folks in Indian country? What, what is your organization doing and what are some others that people need to know about? Well, I think that we're seeing a, a lot of usage of mutual aid. It's really unique for a lot of rural communities um, because of the dynamics of just the distances between communities. But um, that's been pretty pretty strong to see. Organization I work for, the Indigenous Environmental Network, just created a fund, Indigenous COVID-19 Mutual Aid Fund. If you have the resources and want to support some of the work that we're doing, definitely check out that. And then folks on our frontline Indigenous communities um, can also access that fund. And that fund is not just for people that live within the boundary of the so-called United States of America, but for relatives on, of North and South America um, across Turtle Island and beyond. Um, I think that what I'm seeing, and this is strictly coming from an indigenous diaspora from a perspective of, of, of indigeneity and indigenous nationhood, is a lot of communities asserting their self-determination and sovereign right um, by establishing checkpoints of, setting, of saying, look, you are not allowed to come into our community because you're gonna be putting us at greater risk. That's happening in South Dakota, Montana, uh, up in Alaska, in, up in um, Canada. There's communities who have established their own community checkpoints run by their own people saying, look, if you're an outsider, you're not allowed to come into our community. And they're regulating that. And I love that for so many different reasons. I love that for one, it's, it's, a, it's a direct expression of, of uh, indigenous nationhood, but it's also normalizing the language around protecting your borders and, and protecting your community. You know, I want to be careful about the word borders, but it's really for us as indigenous peoples, it's protecting the territories of our uh, and the land in which we live. So I think that's really uh, a moment for us to like really consider. I, I think you had Naomi Klein on before and, and she talks a lot about shock doctrine. A lot of folks talk about slides and shock and all that. What happens when there's chaos within the capitalist system 
and how there's a lot of slide going back and forth about what is the norm. And here's an opportunity for a lot of our communities to establish uh, a sense of sovereignty. I'm saying that not just from a perspective of, a, of a, an indigenous sovereignist. I'm also talking about folks who are advocating constantly for black liberation, for other communities of color who are actually advocating for um, a sense of control over what's happening in their community. Uh, that's what I'm, where I'm seeing a lot of resource and people putting energy into that I would love to continue to support. Mm -hmm. Rosa, what, what work are, are you seeing happening and, and where would you direct people's energies? I mean, I'm in Albany, New York, so it's a it's such a very different situation. But um, there are two things that I, I would love to see happen. And um, when Rinku talked about citizen journalism, right now in Cuomo's daily press conferences to this day, there has not been one reporter of color allowed in those press conferences. And I, I, I want people to start to begin to fight for that because we know it's the reporters of color that are then going to ask why Cuomo, the greatest white hope to everybody in America apparently right now, has refused to talk about what's going on in the juvenile detention centers, the immigrant holding centers, the deaths in Sing Sing prison, and the 500 CEOs in Rikers Island that have been diagnosed with coronavirus. And I think if we had some type of citizen journalist there, or let's just say a true journalist who's just not asking questions, but really going in deeply, we're seeing the numbers right now in de Blasio and Cuomo talk about how they are so surprised and upset about how African-American Latinx people are being disproportionately affected by the coronavirus. But those statistics are wrong because they're not counting those incarcerated people. So if you're telling me 38% of African-Americans in New York state have the coronavirus, let's just say we add the prison population, we could be at high numbers of 50% or higher. So that's what I would like to see. And I would like to see people more supporting rap, the, the, the movement right now that is really pushing hard to release aging people in prisons. Um, you know, so I think going back to what Rinku said, that's important. And on the journalism part, lastly, um, as I have a 15 year old daughter, I would gather at this point, 25 year old and younger people have never read a newspaper. They don't care to read a newspaper. They're not reading the New York Times. They're not watching CNN, but where they are going are on TikTok and YouTube and WhatsApp. And we have to find a way as journalists to have information there in bites that they can handle that does not become so mentally distressing for them right now, but keeps them informed. And that's the type of journalism I'm doing as much as I can on a nightly basis. I'm doing an Instagram live show and I've have had up to 50,000 viewers. And most of them are young people who don't really watch any media, but what's on social media. So that's the kind of work I'm, I'm trying to do right now. Thank you. Danny, you're an academic activist. So where are you directing your, your energies and what would you, um, I think more broadly, want to see come out of this moment? Well, maybe I'll talk about one opening in particular related to healthcare. You know, long before this crisis happened, there were we understood that it, at, at the heart of it, a privatized market-based healthcare system underlies many of the, um, you know, assumptions of that some people are life-worthy and others are death-worthy that we're seeing. But the, the, I think part of what the COVID crisis has revealed is we can't just talk about a universal approach to healthcare if we don't deal with these very specific histories of medical racism, of the particular ways that colonialism has affected indigenous people, of, of how colonialism affected Puerto Rico. So I think we have an opportunity now to think about, we absolutely have to fight for these broad-based social programs. Mutual aid is critical 
but it, it ultimately it's not going to care for all of us. It can get us there, but we need to maintain a vision where everyone is cared for. But the language of universalism hasn't gotten us there because it hasn't specifically taken up the very racialized ways that some people are viewed as worthy of health and other people are not. So for, for me, this is a reminder that for the next stage of these efforts to really fight for robust public programs, we have to think about how the opponents to that are always going to uh, make use of these racial um, differences in histories. Thank you. Thank you, Danny. You know, uh, you know, to do this fight, you know, we've had uh, a sense that we need to understand what's happening. We need to understand our histories um, and, and how they relate uh, to one another. We need information, but we also need inspiration. We need to figure out um, how do we put one foot in front of the other in this moment. So um, I, 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 I'm going to press on our last uh, three speakers, just to ask, where are you finding it? How are you uh, galvanizing it? What is it um, that you use on a day-to-day -day basis? So, um, Rinku. One of the things I'm super concerned about is the breaking down of our social bonds because we can't be together and see each other. So I think we have to pay attention to building those, strengthening those, while we're doing whatever else we're doing, whether it's mutual aid or organizing for um, you know single payer health care, or to decarcerate people who are still in prison. So social bonds is what I think about a lot, and what I go out looking for. Well, I don't go out, but um, what I look for in my screens and um, you know phone calls and email. Mari, what 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 inspires you? What's your fuel right now? This is a moment of incredible possibility. The status quo is broken. The idea that the market ought to determine what your life chances are, that individuals ought to pick themselves up by their bootstraps. I think we see how crazy and corrupt that notion is. The only way is for us to see each human as valuable and to take care of one another so that we know we won't be alone in our hour of need. And we've been running our country in the exact opposite way. Uh, winner take all, the billionaire's ball, and everybody else forgotten. And now large numbers of us realize that we were considered expendable. Uh, people in my age group are considered expendable. And we have to watch out for this because there, there's gonna be a lot of pressure to end the shutdowns and get everybody back to work. And part of the calculus is it's okay to lose some people. You put up the picture from Hawaii of the Mauna Kea protectors, and that front line was all elders. The people that hold the wisdom, the strength, the vision that's gonna get us through this, they're not expendable. The idea that we should take less, protect the earth, take care of one another, is the idea that is going to win because it's what's going to get us out of this. And there are going to be more and more people ready to organize around that idea. So I feel like uh, it's our duty to fight for our freedom and we're going to win. So Asali, um, you know, you're in New Orleans. It is a place that is still reeling uh, from the loss of bodies, you know, um, both people who were lost, but people who were shipped out and never brought back. And people talk about that a lot, but what they talk less about is the, the cultural losses, you know, for cultural production, for um, what people, what our people in particular have always had with us as the soundtrack of survival that's not as available. So tell us both what, what you're doing organizationally, but then importantly, what you're doing in the home. Organizationally, um, at Ashe, we reprogram um, some of our dollars, some of our operational and programming dollars to provide emergency response grants um, for artists and cultural workers here in the city. You know, as I mentioned earlier, our cultural workers provide the, um, the bedrock of our industry, but um, make the least, and they are being missed by all of the organizational safety net systems because many of them are self-employed and gig economy workers and those kinds of things. They just don't have the protections. They don't have access. So we are doing $2,000 grants. We partner with um, 
three other small local organizations to repurpose some of our programming money to um, provide that for our constituents, for our artists and culture bearers, many of them elders, you know, right here at the beginning of the festival season when many of them have invested, you know, so much money and time and inventory into that. And, you know, it's um, that opportunity is wiped out for them. Um, personally, for me, I um, The Guardian released an article um, in January that I have just been clinging to called The Search for Eden. And it talks about culture as the number one most valuable resource of humanity as the one thing that has kept us alive, um, you know, through these millennia. And, um, you know, it's a really wonderful in-depth article. I encourage everyone to read it. But what it made me think of, you know, for my children, um, I I thought of the African-American spirituals, the Negro spirituals, the slave songs, whatever, you know, name folks want to give it. You know, those songs, I remember them growing up. And, you know, sometimes things would happen that I couldn't even name. And, you know, would call up one of those songs. And I know that my children have less access to those songs because um, in our charter school system with hardly any Black teachers, you know, all Black teachers um, in New Orleans were fired after Katrina. Like, that's just a fact. Teachers were wholesale (laughs) fired and not allowed to come back. And so, you know, the teachers that I grew up with and who taught me about who I was and what my connection to my humanity, to my past, and what was possible for my future, those people are no longer in the schools. And the kids who the teachers who are there, they don't know our children and they're not invested in our children. And I hate to be cavalier or, um, you know, make a blanket statement, but in general, they really just do not care. At least I don't have evidence of the care. So, you know, really holding on to the Negro spirituals, teaching my kids the, um, the Black National Anthem and, you know, all kinds of other songs, because I really think that their generation will need that cultural knowledge um, to draw upon to get them through the times that they have ahead. Mm. Thank you so much, uh, Asali, for ending this incredible panel on such a profound note. And thank all of you for joining us. This would not have been possible without the time and effort of our team at the African American Policy Forum and the Center for Intersectionality and Social Policy Studies. And a very, very special thank you to our panelists, Rinku Sen, Asale Divan Ecclesiastes, Dallas Goldtooth, Danny Hosang, Mari Matsuda, and Rosa Clemente. We invite you to join us over Zoom for the next episode in our series, this Wednesday, April 15th at 8 p.m. The new episode will feature Bree Newsom, Paul Butler, Jonathan Metzel, Barbara Arnwine, and Kahindi Andrews. For more information and an RSVP link, look to our website at aapf.org. Keep listening and support us on our Patreon page for bonus content from all of our interviews. You can find Intersectionality Matters on social media at aapf.org and everywhere podcasts are available. Intersectionality Matters is produced and edited by Julia Sharp Levine. Additional support was provided by Emmett O'Malley, Michael Kramer, Janine Irving, and Andrew Sun. I'm your host, Kimberly Crenshaw, and this is Intersectionality Matters. Louis Scarcella was the greatest homicide detective of his generation. I am the protector of these people. I am the guardian that they need. Derek Hamilton was the best jailhouse lawyer of his. And the law was my girlfriend. It was all I had. What happens when a group of convicted felons take on the cop who put them away? We got to attack Scarcella. Come and get me. Listen to new episodes of The Burden on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.